Aloha, everyone. This is Volts for March 1st, 2023. Taking carbon out of the air and putting it into concrete. I'm your host, David Roberts. Last month saw the announcement of a pioneering project. A company called Heirloom Carbon Technologies will capture carbon dioxide from the ambient air and then hand it off to a company called Carbon Cure Technologies, which will inject the CO2 into concrete made by a company called Central Concrete. It will mark the first time ever that carbon from the ambient air is permanently sequestered in concrete. Heirloom, which runs the U.S.'s only operating direct air capture facility, does not use the familiar capture technique that involves giant fans. You've probably seen pictures of those giant fans and a big machine out in the desert. This is not that. Instead, it binds carbon to exposed rock and then cooks it out using electric kilns and then binds more carbon to the rock in a circular process. It claims the capture is cheaper and more efficient than previous methods. Carbon Cure injects the CO2 into a concrete mixer where it mineralizes, becoming permanently captured even if the building using the concrete is demolished. In the process, it strengthens the mix, requiring less cement and cutting costs. Direct air capture has faced a great deal of skepticism, and concrete has the reputation as being one of the worst carbon offenders. So this project, one of the first that can fairly be called carbon removal, could go a long way toward convincing investors that the former can help the latter change its ways with a technology that is, at least someday, commercializable. I talked with Heirloom CEO Shashank Samala, and Carbon Cure CEO Robert Niven about their respective processes, how they work together, and what the project says about the future of carbon removal. All right, uh, Shashank Samala, CEO of Heirloom Carbon Technologies, and Robert Niven, CEO of Carbon Cure. Welcome to Volts. Thank you guys for coming. Thanks very much for having us. This is a really nifty, <laughs> a nifty project you guys are working on together. It's uh, two separate pieces that normally I would probably do a pod on each. So we're going to have to, or at least I'm going to have to be less wordy than normal. Squeeze it all in in one hour. So let's. Uh, I want to talk about both half of it. So let's start with Shashank. The first half of this process is heirlooms process of removing carbon from the air. Can you just explain quickly how that process works, uh, what it looks like? Sure. So heirloom, if you're not aware of who we are, you know, our goal is to basically remove a billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere uh, annually by 2035. And, you know, our whole goal is to help reverse climate change. And, and the way we do that is through a process called uh, limestone looping. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, what that means is we use a, a rock that is very abundant in nature, limestone, that has a natural propensity to pull carbon from the air. What we do is we basically give superpowers to limestone to pull a lot more carbon than it otherwise would naturally. So how it works is we start with limestone, we put that into a kiln, we heat it up, and we pull out the CO2 that's already sequestered in the limestone. 
which makes the leftover lime highly thirsty for CO2. So we take advantage of that natural property by laying it out on trays. Think about baking trays. I lay them out on trays and then we vertically stack those trays very tall. And the air brings in the CO2 and the the lime sitting on the tray acts as a sponge, pulls up the CO2 molecules from the air. It becomes limestone again after it pulls it up. And uh, we do that in about three days. Uh, naturally, it would take you know many months to pull carbon uh, from the air. Uh, we do that in three days uh, using our well-treated algorithms and technology. So in, in three days means the lime is full, absorbed as much CO2 as it can? Exactly. We, we don't go all the way up to 100%. We, we go up to about 85%, mm-hmm. um, and which is sort of the optimal point we, we realized. And then, yeah, it becomes limestone again, which is great because that's what you started with. So we can recycle mm-hmm. that limestone by putting it back into the kiln, pull out the CO2 we, we captured, and then store it underground or store it into concrete, which we're doing with carbon gear. Right. So um, one of the questions I had is, you, you know, you crush up this lime and spread it out on, well, Calcium carbonate. Is limestone calcium carbonate? The chemical formula, exactly right. The calcium carbonate. And then after you bake it, <laughs> take CO2 out, then what is, the, what is the chemical remainder? Calcium oxide. Calcium oxide, right. So you have calcium oxide laid out on trays, becoming calcium carbonate. Then you take the calcium carbonate, cook it, get the CO2 out of it, and then um, do the whole thing over again. Exactly. We just keep doing that. Uh, it's a super simple chemical process to pull carbon from the air. You know, you have this uh, calcium oxide and it's absorbing CO2 from the air. That just sounds like a ambient chemical process. How can it be accelerated? What does it even, what does it even mean to accelerate that? So it technically, calcium oxide, we, we hydrate it. It becomes calcium hydroxide. Basically, there's a water molecule uh, binding onto the calcium oxide. But essentially what what we realized is that, you know, there's a specific parameter space where in particle size, particle size distribution, thickness of the bed, humidity, mm-hmm. temperature, airflow, there's all these different variables that dictate how fast calcium hydroxide likes to bind onto CO2 molecules. So it just so happens that in nature, there's a specific parameter space where this happens. And, you know, in nature, it doesn't see that parameter space as often. What we do is essentially make it see that all the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, how we specifically do that is really the IP. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we've collected millions and millions of data points over the last few years, doing lots of small experiments, you know, adjusting thickness, adjusting, you know, particle size, surface area, all of these things. And we found that parameter space. And as the weather changes throughout the day, we have to change that parameter space. So we essentially, we babysit these trays uh, you know, if you look at, you know, essentially what, what this technology looks like, you have these tall stacks of trays, and in the middle, you have a little robot that goes up and down, and it's every few hours, it's babysitting these trays uh, so that uh, they can be carbonating as fast as they possibly could. So is this all in a big climate-controlled facility of some kind? I mean, presumably, you have to control the climate because you need specific conditions. Yeah, so fortunately, we were able to not have it be fully climate controlled. Uh, so if you actually, if you come to Brisbane, our headquarters where we have this pilot facility, this is actually sitting outside really? uh, in ambient conditions. Yeah. So this robot is actually creating a microclimate for each tray huh. uh, every few hours. 
So because what we're trying to do is try to symbiotically work with nature mm -hmm. to pull carbon, right? And nature gives you humidity and temperature and airflow, mm -hmm. right? We don't want to put, you know, forced airflow, these large fans pushing air through. We want to leverage wind. We want to leverage humidity. And then when it doesn't get enough from nature, we complement it. We accelerate it uh, with a few things. And so when you have this calcium carbonate that's absorbed all the CO2 and you put it in the kiln, what what does that kiln look like? How's it powered and how hot does it have to get? So the kiln is actually super simple. It's like your toaster oven, effectively. It's <laughs> it's electric. It can be you know run by an renewable energy. It essentially it's a metal tube, and you have an electric heating element, and just like your toaster oven, that mm. that sort of surrounds it, and then you have insulation ceramic that keeps the heat inside. And then that's it. You essentially send calcium carbonate through that metal tube. It stays in there for, you know, in the order of minutes. And how hot's the inside? Uh, it's about 850 to 900 degrees C. Oh, um, wow. So, really hot. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, electric kilns can actually go way higher than that. Mm. That's one of the questions we get. It's like, oh, you know, you're using electricity. Like, wh wh why are you not? Like, you know, you, you would think that you would use natural gas or, you know, some other form of combustion to get that temperature. It's like, no, the electric arc furnaces for steel actually go up to like 1,400, 1,500 degrees C. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we need about 850, 900 C. And then, you know, it's only there for seconds to minutes. Oh, really? So the CO2 comes out pretty easily? Yeah, exactly. So there's only two things that come out. It's CO2 and calcium oxide. The CO2, it's pure. We capture that gas and compress it. And then the calcium oxide, we reuse it again. And what's the sort of energy balance here? I mean, it, strike, it just strikes me that it must take a lot of... You're saving energy by letting you know natural conditions do the air circulation and humidifying and all that. You're using a lot of energy in the kiln. I'm just sort of curious how energy intensive this is per sort of captured ton of CO2. I guess there's not a big comparison base of other <laughs> carbon capture technologies to compare it against. But Well, you know, the Lens V, when we first started looking for which approach to use to pull carbon from the air, two things were important to us. One was use abundant, abundant minerals abundant processes. Did you start with the idea of mineralization or did you just come to this with a just a blank sheet of paper and say, what's the best way to capture carbon? So I, I actually came in from the mineralization perspective. So I was looking at rocks. Um, I was talking mm -hmm. to lots of scientists working on using rocks to pull carbon because, you know, it's just like an abundant mineral to start. And if you want to pull gigatons of CO2, like you, you need to have abundant minerals that are also trillions of tons of rock in the, in the Earth's crust. And then we realized actually just using rocks won't get you the economics and the land. Uh, you know, we wanted to use as little land as possible. Mm -hmm. We wanted to use as little water and, and energy as possible. So we needed to make, engineer it a little bit to ensure that we, we use as little energy as possible. In terms of materials, like how much is lost in the full cycle of sort of you're, you're mining the limestone to begin with, I guess, right? right. I mean, there, there are mm -hmm. limestone mines around already limestone's abundant so you're mining the limestone to begin with once the limestone goes through one of these whole cycles gets cooked replaced absorbed absorbs again cooked again how much material is lost in those cycles so so far we found very small material losses um essentially that's one of our main metrics over the last couple of years as we 
we're scaling it up to actually putting this outside. And, you know, one of the things we get, it's like, hey, you know, if you put these rocks out there, you know, doesn't the wind blow everything off? But essentially what happens is we actually, when this is hydrated, it actually turns into a crust. Mm. Um, it's like a cake. So yeah, we've, we've seen really small material losses and we will continue to, ins- you know, tweak the entire process to reduce it even further. But your materials are pretty cheap. As, uh, I mean, th- That's they, true. They, they're not the big cost center. It's not. I mean, the material itself is like less than half a percent of the entire CapEx. <laughs> yeah, limestone is, you know, you can buy it for 20, 30 bucks a ton. It's the second most mined material on the planet. It's, <sighs> you have way more than we need. One additional question I wanted to ask about the process is you um, make a big deal about modularity. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, this is a subject close to the heart of Volt's listeners. We were just, uh, we just did a pod a few weeks ago about sort of what kinds of technologies get on learning curves and what kinds yeah. don't and sort of what features of a technology lend it to rapid learning. And one of those features is, of course, modularity is it have re- easily reproducible bits. Yes. So just say a little bit about how you sort of ha- had that in mind as you designed the process. It was absolutely number one uh, for me. I, I come from a manufacturing background. Uh, before this, I uh, at an electronics manufacturing company where we basically built lots of circuit boards in a factory. You know, one of the things that humanity really understands and knows is how to build things in mass volumes with with a very steep learning curve, right? And right. we saw that with solar panels, lithium-ion batteries, cars. You know, I tell the team here, it's like, we're trying to build cars, not airports, right? Airports are on-site, <laughs> custom construction, and the the folks who are working on one airport are not going to the next airport. The learnings don't uh, don't translate. When people think about a big direct air capture facility, I think probably what comes to mind is something like an airport, a big bespoke one time thing. But you are, are trying to avoid that. Yeah. So you know, there's a difference between modularity and the plants, right? So the plants themselves need to have modules that are mass producible or built in a factory so they can Mm -hmm. just be brought to the site, bolt them to the ground, ready to go, instead of having to build up from the ground up on the site. So essentially you're trying to minimize on-site construction. So, you know, there's always, you know, like solar panels, right? Like they need to be bolted down to the ground. There is some concrete slabs involved and, you know, wiring and and plumbing, et cetera. But you want to minimize that as much as possible. And that's the fundamental idea behind heirloom. It's like, you know, our tray is basically the smallest module and we make lots and lots of trays. <laughs> One doesn't think of trays as something that, you know, have a lot of room for <laughs> innovation. Yeah. Are, are there, is there anything special about the trays? Um, there's a few things that are custom and it so, <laughs> it so happens that the world, you know, we needed such large trays that, you know, we, we went to the, the, the vendor that makes the largest trays in the world and, you know, they just w- would not make the trays that we needed. So we actually make custom trays. Oh, funny. Uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're large. Um, so we make the world's largest trays. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, they use traditional manufacturing processes, you know, extrusion, thermoforming, right. etc. They're not complicated. Um, and that's one of the principles behind heirloom too. It's, you know, we don't want to come up with a new manufacturing process. The world has uh, immense, just lots and lots of experience building all sorts of things. And we just want to leverage them and, and scale them to the max. Because that's how you get to billion tons of CO2 removed as fast as possible. So the trays a module, the trays stack. Are also and the next level of module. Is yeah. a module. And presumably the kilns are pretty standard issue. They don't have to be tweaked or whatever for individual. Yeah. 
Traditionally, you know, if you go to a cement factory, kilns are actually these massive on-site built kilns, uh, mm. but we use a electric kiln technology that we're actually going to be releasing in a few weeks here, um, that, is, that is modular. So you essentially stack uh, a, a couple of cylinders on top of each other. Oh, interesting. So you, you, you did a little design work of, near, of kilns of your own. Yeah, we, we did some here. We, we were working with a technology partner to do that too. This whole process, presumably, if you, you know, sat down to try to figure out what's the best process for capturing air carbon, you looked at the traditional, you know, I think when uh, most people think of direct air capture, if they think of it at all these days, <laughs> yeah, the, the few people who think about it at all think about the, the big machines out in the desert with the fans, right. you know, sort of pulling air over a, uh, a, a sorbent. Is your process more efficient than that in terms of sort of energy and material input versus CO2 output? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you essentially, what we're trying to do is use abundant materials that are incredibly cheap and use as little energy that is, you know, thermodynamically possible. Mm-hmm. Um, really, all of our energy is in that back end where we are regenerating the sponge, uh, which is common across all directory capture technologies. You know, that's sort of second law of thermodynamics. You have to put in some energy to regenerate the sorbent. And, you know, for us, we want to essentially lower that regeneration energy as much as possible and um, and then not use energy when we can leverage nature and, and other things. It strikes me then that the cost of energy is going to be one of your big top line items is that yeah. how big how big is the cost of energy in your in your overall picture at scale it's more than half and that's exactly where you want to be right because you know laws of physics tells us that you have to put in energy to do gas separation right. especially uh, gas separation that is as hard as 400 parts per million so if you design a system and you look at the long term economics you want to make sure that you know at long term Almost all of it, all of that is is energy because that's something you cannot beat. Like energy creates your cost floor. Right. If your capex ends up being a much bigger proportion, well, you haven't really designed or engineered it well. You know that's what I tell the team. It's like you know you want your cost floor to be determined by physics and not engineering. So you know that's why we use very simple trays. Very simple. You know we're just putting a bunch of rocks and a bunch of trays. <laughs> um, and using a metal tube on the on the other hand, and I'm putting some you know insulation around it. So uh, you want to keep that as low as possible, so that your your hundred bucks a ton. That's really our cost target. You probably heard of the the, the cost target, hundred dollars per ton. That's really the cost point where it's affordable for humanity to do this at a billion ton scale, and to actually make a meaningful impact. And of course, it's like you know, renewable electricity is galloping down the aforementioned cost curve. So insofar as you can hitch your ride to it, it's going to carry you down the cost curve too. Yeah, exactly. The nice thing about renewable energy for us is, you know, you can pull carbon from the air anywhere, right? It's, right. It can be in the Gulf Coast, it can be in New Zealand, it can be South Africa, India, Indonesia, like wherever you go, the concentration of CO2 in the air is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And that's what our technology works with. So, you know, we will go to places where renewable energy supply is high, but the demand is low. So we don't, you know, take away the supply that could have been used for food production or, or putting our buildings. So I, ideally, then you would be, these facilities would be co-located with some big renewable energy just to minimize exactly. transmission costs and all that. Yeah. 
two final questions. One is you mentioned the hundred cost per ton target. Can you give us a sense of where you are on the on the road to that? Do we have is there a number? Yeah, so we're in the sort of high hundreds of dollars per ton right now. And essentially we're at the demonstration scale, right? You know, we're building this by hand. Uh, you know, engineers are building them. We're, mm-hmm. We built a couple of Formula One cars effectively, and we need to get <laughs> right. this to a stage where we can mass produce uh, Toyotas uh, off of the factory <laughs> line. You know, what, what is what is what are Formula One cars cost these days? Like millions of dollars <laughs> so versus, you know, $20,000 Toyota. So, you know, at the end of the day, the material inputs are so cheap, you know, limestone and, and trays and uh, metal tubes that at scale, we should be able to um, hit that cost. And for us, it's all about how do you get there as fast as possible? Yeah. And if you're, you know, you're chosen super cheap material and renewable energy, which is super cheap. And if those are your only two inputs, that's, you know, logic says you're going to get cheap eventually (laughs) as you approach the cost of the materials. So the final question is this, at the end of this process, you have CO2, Mm -hmm. which you can do anything with. Are you deliberately staying out of the business of doing something with it? <laughs> I mean, is, is the model always to just hand off the CO2 to someone else who's going to do something with it? Yeah, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of things you can do with CO2, but for us, there's only two things you can do so far. Uh, you know, one we are looking at is concrete, uh, you know, working with folks like uh, Carbon Cure and putting it underground. And both are permanent. Mm-hmm. And, and an incredibly important principle is permanence because you know, CO2 stays in the air for a thousand years. So you don't want to pull carbon from the air only for that gas to go back in the air 10 years later, 100 years later. We're just pushing the buck into the future. So for us, it's incredibly important that we permanently sequester it into something so it doesn't come back out. And the only two things we found so far with that type of over a thousand year durability is concrete, where essentially you're binding CO2 into a rock, uh, it mineralizes, and then putting it underground. And that is something that humanity has, you know, over five decades of experience putting CO2 underground. Um, so, and, and it's permanent and we, we, we know it's safe. But are you, are you planning at all to get into the permanent storage business or is the idea that you produce the carbon and some other entity is running the storage yep. facility? Like, how does that work? Some other entity is running the storage facility. We're going to be focused on, you know, really building an incredibly efficient, cost-effective capture system. And we will work with a whole set of partners to put, you know, a billion tons of CO2 stored somewhere permanently. I've heard you say this in other interviews too, but just to be clear, like, the vast bulk of it, especially once we get scaling up towards, you know, whatever, billions and billions of tons, the vast bulk of that is going to be stored in underground caverns. Like there's just the amount that can be used in a way that permanently sequesters it is a relatively small fraction of the total amount that's going to be produced. Yeah, I mean, as much as possible, if you want, you know, every ton of concrete we can put CO2 into, we will do that. Like that is our first priority, right? Like, you know, because you essentially you're creating a, a stronger building material, it's a value added product and it's permanent. You're, you're checking all the boxes and, you know, that's better than putting the waste underground. So everything, you know, every ton of concrete we can do that, we will absolutely want to do that. And when we can't, we will put that underground and, and most likely, you know, at, at a gigaton scale, most of that will likely be underground. But, you know, it's hard to predict the future, right? Right, right. Rob, let's talk to you then, because here is where we get to the part of the relay race where Shashank hands you the baton, or rather hands you 
a bunch of tanks of CO2. <laughs> so describe for us then the carbon cure process, which, which starts with a source of CO2. You get the CO2 from, from heirloom, and then what? Sure, I'd be happy to jump into that. Just to help the audience understand is we're both carbon removal companies, but coming at it from both ends of the process. Right. Shashank on the capture, ourselves on the relay race, receiving that CO2 and doing something with it. Carbon Cure has been in business for about 10 years. Uh, we're a Canadian company and we have about 700 plus customers worldwide that every day are using CO2 to mineralize it in concrete to make a better, stronger concrete that provides some cost efficiencies by cement efficiency, by making stronger concrete, you need less cement, which provides that economic incentive. And low carbon concrete is in great demand in the market, not only private sector, but we're seeing a lot of policy incentives as well. So you're, you're in the business, you're sequestering carbon, you're doing it today, you're, you're getting CO2 from someone and sequestering it in concrete. Do you have any, like, what's the current scale so we can get our heads around kind of what's involved here? We have everything connected through the cloud and you can actually pull up our, our homepage and you can see the numbers go up every second about how many metric tons. And it's just about 250,000 metric tons uh, to date. So the key difference here is that most of our CO2 to date is received from what's called post-industrial sources. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are our large emitters. And rather than diverting those emissions into the atmosphere, they're uh, capturing it, compressing it. And companies that are industrial gas companies are, are taking that CO2 and selling it to a multitude of different industries. And we're a relatively new user of that CO2. Mm. The big one is beverages. Food and beverage is a big one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, food and beverage. Also, some CO2 is used in things like enhanced oil recovery, which some other DAC companies are pursuing. Yeah. So lot, lots of different ways that you can use CO2. But the main point is there's a large existing commodity market for CO2. The key thing here and what's really special about our work with Heirloom is that this is direct air capture source of CO2. Right. And by getting CO2 from the air, it allows you to actually reverse the effects of climate change and pull down the parts per million of CO2 in the air rather than limiting and reducing the rate of emissions that go into the air. So there is a distinction. Right. Additionality is the, is the, is the term of art here. This is 100% this is additional uh, CO2. Well, I would still say that it's also additional if you're using post-industrial CO2. The key difference here is is like this actually enables you to get into removal, a pure removal kind of category. Right. For ourselves, we've always seen this as we'll develop huge and a multitude, thousands of, of storage centers, which is also called a concrete plant <laughs> to most people. <laughs> we, we'll run ahead as fast as we can and develop all of this demand for CO2. And then as DAC gets online is that we'll have the optionality to be able to use that CO2 when it's available. Will there be degrees of greenness <laughs> of concrete depending on the source of CO2? Have you, have you thought about that sort of like different levels of, of, uh, of concrete? I think so. Like 
We sell carbon credits mm. for, uh, as part of, of our business model. And we definitely hear from our credit buyers is that they're willing to pay more if it's using atmospheric sources of CO2, Interesting. such as DAC or biogenic source or whatever it is, whatever can get CO2 out of the air. There is a demand for that. The other group that really matters are the people that purchase the concrete. So these would be architects, engineers, building owners. They're also really excited and probably not as sophisticated on the CO2 sourcing question, but I wouldn't mm. be surprised if that starts to become uh, higher in their consideration. The other point that was brought up by Shashank earlier was permanence. That is very, very important for everybody. Mm -hmm. Is We don't want to be going through all of this trouble to put away CO2 for it to just bubble out again in 30 days. Like, what's the <laughs> point? Um, so that's that's very, very important. So when you say you inject CO2 into the concrete process, spell out a little bit what that means, what that looks like for people who are, are not that familiar. Most people, if they're familiar with Carbon Cure, are aware of our ready mix technology. But Carbon Cure over the last three years has expanded by creating technologies that use CO2 in the concrete value chain in different ways. But let's start off with the ready mix technology. So whenever concrete, uh, if anyone's visited a concrete plant, there's about 125,000 of these locations worldwide, about 7,000 of them in the US. They're basically all the same. They are mixing sites that take aggregates, so rocks, mm -hmm. cement, water, and a few performance-enhancing chemicals to mix those all up in a, in a huge mixer. And then they pour that into a concrete truck, which you are all aware and seen driving around the road. And then that's delivered to the construction site. So that, if we go back and look at that mixer, is all those ingredients are being added. And just like Shashank is like, if we're really going to meet scale is we want to have a modular system that in our case retrofits these existing concrete plants very, very cheaply and very, very quickly without disrupting their production. In fact, it takes us a day. We don't charge any CapEx mm. and the system starts to use that as enabled to start using that CO2 and becomes a carbon removal factory. It starts mineralizing CO2 the next day. And it has all these value-added benefits without creating a price premium on the product. Oh, interesting. So this is not some bespoke process that you have to build a concrete plant around. You're literally just going to an existing concrete plant, slapping something on that takes a day to add. And then from the concrete plant owner's perspective, that's it. Nothing, nothing else changes. There's no, they don't have to do anything else operationally to accommodate this at all? We automate everything. That's the key. And, and it's the same design principles that Shashank has brought into his company. Of course, he's done it fully separately is you want to make this as simple as possible to scale mm -hmm. because the concrete industry just does not have the discretionary budget to start spending a lot of uh, risk capital yes. in, in these kinds of solutions. So we've done all of that for them. And they're very small C conservative too, for, uh, for obvious reasons. Perhaps. Um, it, it, it comes in all different flavors of concrete producers, but they all want to work on this, but they have a lot of limitations. So mm. what we've tried to do is make it as simple as possible, but also do it in a way that they receive the most rewards. And that can be in the form of uh, cost efficiencies and production. 
being able to tap into this rapidly growing demand in the market for low so they can sell more. We always recommend to keep the price at parity and also participate in carbon markets. So we create the incentive structure and make it really simple to adopt and quick so that producers can start to mineralize CO2 as quick as possible. So back to your question, how the process looks like is we're actually adding CO2 into the mixer. And please come to our website as well. We actually have footage and video of uh, what's happening. And then we also have some animation on what's happening at the chemical level. But essentially by adding CO2, it's a very similar type of reaction and thermodynamics as heirloom. And that, that CO2 is very quick to react in seconds with the concrete and it reforms a mineral a calcium carbonate, if we go back to that again, but in a specific <laughs> size called, it's a nanomaterial, which provides all these performance benefits for concrete as it develops its strength, which then leads to some commercial benefits. And then we also use CO2 to treat the main waste water from the plant, and that's called our reclaimed water technology. So it's a second way that we can mineralize a lot more CO2 on the concrete plant, but at a different site of the concrete plant where all their wastewater is being collected is we can actually treat that water to have it upcycled so it can be reused instead of virgin cement and water. And then finally, we can make CO2 into aggregates. But all three of those can be bundled together to be able to drive down the carbon footprint of concrete. Yeah, this was my question when I was looking at your website. If I'm a concrete plant owner, can I get all of those versions? Like, can I get CO2 in my wastewater and CO2 in my mixer and CO2 in my aggregate? And do and are they additive? Like, will that result in three times the carbon removal? Yeah. And that's how we're building this business is to create multiple ways to mineralize CO2 in the concrete value chain and then surround that by ena- doing all the enabling work. Mm-hmm. So we make it a very easy decision for concrete producers to do that. I will caveat that we don't have the aggregate technology commercialized, Mm. but the other two we do. In fact, we had the first pilot with Heirloom that was at the Central Concrete Facility, which is a division of Vulcan Materials in San Jose, California. That plant is the first in the United States to have the reclaimed water and the ready mix technology. So they're one of now two plants in the U.S. that are able to provide that combo. Uh, which is really exciting. Interesting. And do the strengthening benefits you're talking about, do you get double those too when you do when you do both the stages of, of adding carbon? The ready mix technology gives you that strength benefit. Mm-hmm. And then on the reclaimed water, jury's still out and we're defining the strength benefit. But what it definitely does is it allows you, it's a, a substitution effect, is that you're actually able to recover the cement in that wastewater and then use that instead of virgin cement. So at the end of the day, it's the same effect, using less virgin cement to make concrete. Right. But you're achieving that by mineralization. What's cool about the reclaimed water technology is we actually won the Carbon X Prize uh, for this technology, which was defined as the the world's most scalable CO2 utilization technology. Interesting. What happens to that water today? Is it just thrown out? Or what, what happens to the reclaimed water? Most of it just gets thrown out today. It, it goes, uh, the traditional way of doing that is it would go into large settling ponds. They would um, scoop out the the settled material, which, by the way, is valuable cement and chemistry yeah. that that producer paid a lot of money for. And there was a lot of CO2 released to make that. 
that would uh, often just get landfilled. And then the water uh, would get sometimes treated for pH and then discharged. So we're able to turn that all that process and eliminate it by reusing it yeah. in a circular manufacturing type of design. Interesting, interesting. Uh, a question about the strength benefits. Are the strength, and by which we just mean the cement is a little stronger, and so you have to use a little bit less cement in the concrete, so your, your savings that way. Are those savings, in terms of strength, enough to pay for the thing, or do you have to value the the, the sequestration on some level to make this pencil out? We are able to provide the low-carbon concrete to the market and combination through our carbon credit sales and through these, these manufacturing efficiencies of using less cement, we're able to provide that concrete at no price premium by using a blend of both contributions. And that's very important. Like if you, a, a year ago, if you go onto your uh, podcast catalog, Rebecca Dell was on the show. Yes. Talking about how green premium is really, really important we need to find ways to eliminate that to unlock an adoption in building materials and the green premium is uh it really anything can inhibit mass adoption that's what's really important is that we don't apply that green premium so that the market whether that be the government which is the largest buyer and we're seeing a lot of buy clean type legislation or private sector which have a lot of sustainability uh, targets from corporate actors are able then to make these kinds of procurement decisions without compromising on price and certainly not compromising on quality and working with the same suppliers that they've worked with for years prior. Maybe this is a naive question, but if I'm a concrete manufacturer and you know, like I can have this done and installed in a day, it's not going to affect my operations. It's going to save me a little money on reducing cement. It's going to make me a little money on selling carbon credits. And otherwise, I'm selling a more or less identical product at a more or less identical price. Why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> what would stop someone from, from doing this? Yeah. Yeah, I would say just education. But we're already like the, I would, I would say, I, I don't know for sure, but probably the fastest growing technology in the concrete sector. Mm. concrete sector is not known to be <laughs> rapidly yeah. uh, adopting new technologies but I, I would say we are growing at, at a very rapid rate and certainly there are different kinds of concrete producers which normally adopt technology faster than other types of producers profiles and we're seeing that happen and the rate of adoption is happening far faster when we see those market signals like the procurement policies right. or even requiring environmental product declarations in the procurement process. Right. Uh, so those kinds of things really accelerate this transition to the market. There's a reason why so much innovation is happening in San Francisco in the concrete sector is because there's a lot of companies that operate there that are really walking the talk. And the concrete industry is, is enabled, empowered to bring their best forward. But if concrete producers are in markets where they're never hearing someone talk about decarbonization, yeah. they have 20 other things that, that they can prioritize that they need to work on. Right, right, right. So you need some valuation of the carbon benefits to kind of push this up the priority list. And it doesn't have to be a premium, right? When you say valuation, it just needs to be identified. Like 
you, you know, when like a, an example would be a Microsoft, when they're building, they're asking all of their suppliers to say, I, I want to reduce our carbon target by X. And then they go around and they say, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? What can you do for me? Mm -hmm. Well, the concrete producer hears that loud and clear, and they may win that bid over a competitor if they have some ideas and they can bring something to the table. I want to get a sense of scale before we move on from the process, sort of, you know, if I, if I'm producing concrete and I'm using your process to inject CO2, say I do both of the available options and I get CO2 injected into my wastewater and I get CO2 injected into my mixer, is the end product of that carbon negative or how close is it to carbon negative? Give a sense of scale, like how much of the carbon in the process is being offset by this? Yeah, it's one piece of the pie. Like to get to carbon negative or neutral concrete is we're going to need some substantial changes on the cement side as well and there are some fellow companies within our investors portfolio uh, a great example would be like a brimstone who are do working on the cement side we're working with whatever cement is coming down the line and we're adding if you sort of combine the reclaimed water and ready mix you're you're getting another 10 to 15 percent but that's 10 to 15 percent off of a global commodity with a huge volume and we can do it today with very little capex and it's permanent so if you think about a marginal abatement cost curve it's like this is the furthest left uh on, <laughs> on that curve whereas right. this is the thing that is is easy to implement at scale it, it has a significant percentage reduction but off of a huge number the volume of concrete is enormous. There's about um, 40 billion tons of concrete produced or 4.2 billion tons of cement. And what's the number? I think it's 8% of global emissions, something like that. We use the word, uh, the number 7%. Yeah. And most of that's cement. And the reason it's so big is because so much concrete is being used. It's second only to drinking water and, and production. <laughs> Yeah. So you can take 10 to 15% of the CO2 basically out of the final product, but more than that is going to require deeper changes in the process. And that doesn't include our aggregate technology. So that will, that will layer in a, a lot more. And then, but we need to work together all the way along the value chain. You know, the traditional cement sector are doing things like they're using supplementary cementitious materials instead of cement. And that means using things like fly ash and slag. The problem is those materials are declining in, in availability. Mm. They're doing things like fuel switching. So using waste materials, uh, energy efficiency, all those traditional things should be done. But then there's also some like real deep tech stuff going on right now about fundamentally changing the cement, uh, cement process or, or chemistry. But that's going to take a lot of money. And we still have a lot of time ahead of us. So we need to get going today on those immediately deployable solutions. Right. So you've, you've got a solution here. You can just slap on an existing concrete plant. Boom. You get your 10 to 15, maybe a little bit more uh, uh, CO2 out. And we've shown that this is not only applicable in the United States, but we're operating in many, many emerging markets. And really only about 2% of cement is being produced in the U.S. It's the emerging markets. That's where we really impact climate. Right. And that's where it's growing. That's where people are using concrete. They haven't built out. Uh, there's a lot of population growth. So, And, and we're, we're already going into those markets now. 
because we know that takes a bit of incubation time. And in some markets, we're seeing that already entering into that scaling phase. So you need CO2 as an input to your process. Is there any supply issue or, or, or do you, uh, I mean, CO2 easy to get? And I'm also curious how much you pay for heirlooms CO2 versus more traditionally acquired CO2. Is there, is there a big price differential? So you know, the first part of your question is, is there supply chain issues? Yes. Um, our industry, the concrete industry, has been massively impacted over the last 12 months by cost and supply of cement. And in our case, cost and supply of CO2. Really? Believe it or not, you can't buy CO2 in certain markets. A shortage of CO2. A shortage of CO2. How ironic. And the price is skyrocketing because of it. So no kidding. it's a, a really perverse situation. So we need a lot more heirlooms and we need them to get them into market faster to start to diversify the supply of CO2. Because some of the traditional emitters that you would have been collecting that CO2 mm-hmm. are now changing their process so that that CO2 isn't becoming available anymore. Ethanol is the largest supplier of CO2 in, in the uh, industrial gas market in the United States. So today it, the price varies so much it's largely dependent on transportation. Very commonly, we're paying well over $500 a ton for CO2. We haven't gotten to that stage with Heirloom where they they have the, the volume, the capacity to have those discussions yet. But you know, we really encourage them to move along as fast as they can to get to that billion ton target because that gives us a lot more CO2 that we can work with. So we're, we're exploring all different options for CO2 supply because just from a supply constraint or supply chain disruptions is we're very, very encouraged to solve for that problem now. It's just something that sort of kind of confuses me. And maybe you both can take a swing at this answer. But I'm, I'm seeing a process here at your demonstration plant where we're digging limestone up, doing a bunch of stuff that strips the CO2 out of it. And then injecting the CO2 back into the concrete process where it then becomes limestone again. Why not just dig up the limestone and put it directly in the concrete? <laughs> like what, It seems like a lot of physical processes to sort of end up where you started. Maybe just sort of help me understand that kind of how is this not um, kind of running in place in sort of energetic and CO2 terms? I'm sorry if that was a very vague question. Um, you know, what we are trying to do is pull CO2 that is already in the air. Mm-hmm. So you you need a sponge to pull up that carbon. And we find that calcium oxide, which is, you know, a der- derivative of calcium carbonate, is highly alkaline, is highly thirsty for that CO2. Yeah, and then that's sort of how you create the limestone. And then you're essentially looping the limestone through the cycle. The, the limestone you're finding that you're mining mm-hmm. has already absorbed CO2, right? That's what That's it's right. been doing. It's what it's been doing. So in a sense, it's already absorbed it. Why not just put it directly into the concrete? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I can. I, maybe I can. Maybe my perspective solves that on that bit better. Um, so, you know, the way that I, I think about heirloom is if you take a sponge and you put it into your kitchen sink and then, you know, you pick up, you collect water and then you squeeze it out, then you put it back right. in and squeeze it out. So it, it, it just happens to be calcium. But for, for our process is, you know, there, there may be some listeners who are from civil engineering and understand concrete a bit deeper. And they say, well, concrete already carbonates, right? Um, so there is a natural process that's already happening, but that's limited to the exterior skin of concrete. 
and it's not value added. It doesn't provide those performance benefits. So some way of, of looking at that is like, yeah, if you left concrete exposed to the air for a thousand years, which not too many buildings are around for a thousand years, is you might get that full carbonation extent. But even if you did that, you wouldn't get all of the benefits, the performance enhancing benefits that come from carbonating actively in a certain way that create this nanomaterials, which provides the cement savings. And it, it's also done in a very short time frame, within seconds. And so that that's a key difference here is the time. And the other thing is if you let carbonation happen passively, that's called weathering carbonation, is it actually has the opposite effects on performance. Oh, really? Yeah, it'll actually cause the pH to drop and then it will make the steel corrode, which makes said structure made with that concrete to have durability issues and may fail. So you actually, engineers like myself, are trained to limit carbonation mm. because you don't want that carbonation layer to get to the steel because then that causes that, that concrete to fail. So you take many, many, many steps to stop that from happening. The way that we're doing it is different in that we're actually deliberately carbonating to a certain extent. So you get all these performance enhancing benefits. And that's a really important nuance. One question is this sort of demonstration project of heirloom on the one side, carbon cure on the other side, um, you know, pulling CO2 out of the air, putting it in concrete. I obviously see the benefits in terms of like um, educating the public, you know, making carbon uh, capture and sequestration more real and tangible to people, showing investors that things are happening here, all these effects. But, you know, looking down the road a ways is the sort of direct capture to concrete pipeline is that going to be a real business like is that going to is that going to scale up is that, or or is or is this mostly just for demonstration purposes if they can provide co2 for less than 500 dollars, <laughs> like we've already shown it's scalable right so that like for us that's that's the marker uh and we're more than happy to work with uh shashank and and heirloom uh because if they can provide us cheaper co2 on a reliable supply and the market would prefer atmospheric CO2. I'll do that all day, every day. Um, <laughs> but we're already showing today that using CO2 in concrete is immediately scalable and used in emerging markets, developed economies, what have you. Yeah. The, the awesome thing about concrete is it's the most, per, most abundant commodity, the industrial commodity that we produce. It's like 12 billion tons of concrete that we make. So that's the awesome thing, right? It, like That's why this demonstration I think is so powerful. It's that this is not just, you know, a, a small test that it is a signal for what's to come. And, you know, I, I tell Rob every time I see him, tell me what, what is the price where we can put CO2 in every ton of concrete that, that yeah. they're at and, and a plants that they're not yet at, right, to reduce the cost per ton uh, on the concrete uh, plant side. Um, it's where it's, this is just a not economical no-brainer yeah. for a concrete plant to add uh, heirloom CO2 into the carbon cures process. So, um, the, yeah, that's that's the thing that's exciting. Has anyone done the math on the total sequestration potential of concrete globally? I mean, do we have a sense of scale here, uh, the limits? <laughs> well, the theoretical limit is half the weight of cement could be carbonated. Oh, wow. But I'm not saying you want to do that. I'm saying the theoretically, <laughs> the stoichiometry says that if there's 4.2 billion tons of cement, you could conceivably uh, mineralize 
2.1 billion tons. Wow. And that doesn't include all the aggregate. So you put all the aggregate on uh, on top of that. Uh, and aggregate is is the vast majority, about 85%, 90% of the uh, of the, the mass of, of concrete. So you, you can really get to certainly hundreds of millions, uh, low billion tons of CO2 mineralization in the concrete value chain through carbonating directly through concrete, uh, like what we're doing, or by using CO2 to make aggregates. There's a, a, a few companies that are doing that as well. So it, it does become sizable, but I really want to emphasize it's the value added nature in the immediate nature of this, like the time value of carbon is important in climate change discussions. Yeah. A lot of solutions are targeting to come online and start scaling in 2030 something. Yikes. This is happening now, right? Like, and we need to do as much that we can, especially if there's very little CapEx requirement and no price premium. So um, I've kept you long enough. I guess I'd, uh, I'd ask the same question to each of you to conclude you know, it's the nature of carbon removal that it's not producing a, a product that is valuable enough in and of itself to pay for itself. There's going to have to be a market created for removed <laughs> CO2. We're going to have to sort of generate a market around this if it's going to pay for itself. So I guess I just ask both of you by way of concluding, Shashank, you first, what sorts of policies can help you or would, would most directly help you scale up? So two types of policies. One is a compliance market that essentially requires corporations to effectively price carbon as an externality and and have a cap for carbon uh, emitted so that you know carbon that is not abated or reduced uh, needs to be offset and removed. And, and there's a price for that. And this is something a few a few companies are doing kind of voluntarily, right? right. Like the Stripe um, constellation of companies are basically sort of modeling what that would look like. But they but they that's got to be made law at some point, right? Like you can't you're not going to get enough voluntary companies to right. To scale you know, up, according to IPCC, we need to be removing five to ten billion tons of carbon from the air uh, by 2050. And if you want to see that type of scale, if you t- want to see that type of you know, it's a trillion dollar market at hundred bucks a ton. That's, you know, that's a trillion dollars of revenue every year that we need to get to. So it's amazing. And, and we're so fortunate to work with folks like uh, Frontier, Stripe, Shopify, Microsoft, uh, who are all early buyers of this technology. But we need, you know, thousands more and policy and compliance markets is, is what gets us there. The second type of policy uh, is, you know, what 45Q is doing today. Uh, you may have heard of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tax credit. It's a direct pay uh, for directory capture that is stored permanently. So, you know, we're fortunate uh, and, and, you know, really uh, we, we appreciate everyone who, who worked on the Inflation Reduction Act having that passed last year. Uh, that is such an important element. Uh, it's at $180 per ton. Uh, subsidy, it's it's stackable on top of what customers pay us. Uh, that helps us bring down the cost of, of carbon removal, so it is affordable to everyone. So, you know, that is something that you know not just the U.S. but you know every other country, uh, Europe and Asia should adopt uh, something similar. So, compliance markets and 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 subsidies like forty five Q really help us come down the cost curve. Is there a country doing more than the U.S. for this? Are there are there models to look to where they're going more sort of gangbusters on on DAC? Uh, 
Canada is actually pretty close. Uh, I don't think they've passed this yet, but uh, you know, there, there's a pretty large uh, capex. Uh, I think it's called a production tax credit that might be even more compelling than 45Q, uh, depending mm. on how that's written. So, uh, yeah, su- super fortunate that US and Canada are. You know, th- that is a, that is a type of competitive battle we want, right? You know, this sort of geopolitical competition to see which country can. Uh, help us decarbonize the planet. And, uh, you know, in the past, it was, you know, some countries in Europe that were sort of good hearted and, and have these uh, policies like the, the subsidy for solar in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But now you're seeing, you know, countries compete against each other to bring uh, clean tech and climate tech into their country. So I think, you know, it's moving from a good hearted nature to, to a competition, which is exactly what the planet wants. So that's, that's what's, uh, you know, we should all be uh, up to optimistic and excited about. And how about you, Rob? What's your your policy wish list? What's on top? I would echo what Shashank said, uh, certainly. And about we need many more credit buyers of you know some of the same names like the the Shopify's and Stripes that that really the Microsofts and patches that drove the world of of demand for these credits. Forty five Q for sure. For us, though, the most important policy are these low carbon concrete or buy clean type procurement policies. Right. New Jersey just passed a landmark policy uh, just a couple weeks ago. It was based upon similar work done in New York and Hawaii, California. Uh, we saw a lot of it in the Federal Infrastructure Act. That's what really drives us. Are there um, buy clean, like federal procurement buy clean elements in the in the Infrastructure Act? Yes. If, if uh, my... If I recall, it's about $4 billion in incremental spend on low carbon um, material purchases. That is very, very important for our business. And that's what will drive the storage piece for within concrete, especially. And then that in turn will drive the DAC side or the carbon capture side. So that was really, really important. And they're designed in a way that also requires a strong reporting element using LCA documents like environmental product declarations. And you need those to compare the different options in a third-party verified way. So that procurement policy is very important based upon the kind of models like we're seeing in New Jersey with its LECLA bill. Interesting. Well, um, thank you guys for coming on and walking this through. It's really interesting. It really, uh, I think, if nothing else, takes a very abstract discussion, what can often be a very abstract discussion about about carbon and, and, and carbon removal and all this, and just makes it very, very tangible. Like one, one of the things I love about this is that on both sides, this is not... PhD chemistry or whatever. It's, it's trays of rocks and, you know, squirting CO2 into a mixer. It's, it, I, I love the, uh, there's a ruggedness, I guess, to uh, uh, simple processes that I really like. So uh, it's been really fun to talk through. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Uh, although I will say we have a lot of PhDs working on our team as, as I'm <laughs> yeah, sure we should as well. So yeah. I don't want to diminish the great work that they're doing to make it look this simple. You need to work extra hard. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, there's just a lot of engineering and, and science that goes into making things simple and scalable. Uh, so, yeah, we have lots of PhDs and great engineers on the team. All right. Uh, Shashank Samala and Rob Niven, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking us through this. It's super fascinating. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. 
If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.